This morning we continue our series we're calling Summer in the Psalms. We're exploring God's hymnal, God's prayer book, right in the center of the scriptures. For centuries, God's people have been led by the Psalms, not only in what to believe, but in how to live. Right? What to believe is what the theologians would call orthodoxy, right believing. And then how to live is orthopraxy, and each of them are necessary, right? Remember when Jesus was in conversation with the chief priests and the teachers of the law? Dun, dun, dun. And they asked him that gotcha question. They said, well, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? As if they could really back Jesus into a corner. And Jesus, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's kind of a, like, drop-the-mic moment, right? Jesus said, well, that's right thinking, that's orthodoxy, and that's right living, orthopraxy. As we began our series last Sunday, we asked the question in Psalm 1, what is the good life? What is the the blessed life, the happy life? And we saw that the, the good life, the happy life, the blessed life is a life that is both guarded and guided by God's word. This morning we turn to Psalm chapter 8 to ask the question, what is humanity? Like last week, it's a really big question, and there are a myriad of answers. Years ago, Saturday Night Live posited their own answer to the question, what is humankind? Here's their response. And now, Deep Thoughts. By Jack Handy. Maybe in order to understand mankind, we have to look at the word itself, mankind. Basically, it's made up of two separate words, mank and eind. What do these words mean? It's a mystery, and that's why so is mankind. I saw a lot of those deep thoughts by Jack Handy, but that's the only one I remember. And luckily, the writers of Saturday Night Live are not the only sources of information on the matter. See, we live in a time when scientific inquiry has expanded our understanding of the world. Think about it. Um, Guys like Carl Sagan and Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson have become household names, and they influence our understanding of the universe. Next week, Pastor Pastor Brian will join their ranks. He's going to be preaching from Psalm 19, and he's going to answer all of your questions about creation. (laughs) When it happened, how it happened, how long it took, creation, evolution, billions of years versus 6,000 years, Pastor Brian's going to wrap it up all nicely and neatly in a 25-minute sermon. And he just learned that at the same time you did. So thank you, Pastor Brian. We can't wait for you to answer all of our questions. This morning, we want to just think about that one question. It's a big one. Um, What is mankind? Is it really made up of those two words, mank and eind? In 1990, after 12 years of studying the solar system, NASA engineers turned the camera on Voyager 1 to face back toward Earth. They snapped a picture from four billion miles away, and this is what they saw. They since titled the picture, A Pale Blue Dot. Since then, some other folks have had some fun with similar images. This is my favorite. 
But four years after Voyager 1 took that picture, in a speech at Cornell University, Carl Sagan concluded this. He said, if you look at it, you see a dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever lived. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are all challenged by this pale point of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. Does anybody else feel really small right now? <laughs> See, we live in a time when scientific inquiry has expanded our understanding of the world and our place in it. And science, in all of its forms, I believe science is an incredible gift. But is Carl Sagan's conclusion the whole story? Can we understand anything about Mank and Eind? Are we deluded to think that we have some privileged position in the universe? You see, there are sources other than Jack Handy and other than Carl Sagan. Hear God's word in Psalm chapter 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. That's quite a line, isn't it? It's almost like we should put it to music or something. <laughs> O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. Because of your enemies, to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for them. Now, through verse 4, the psalmist seems to agree with the astrophysicists. 3,000 years before a pale blue dot, before you are here, King David looked into the night sky and asked the question, who are we that God would pay us any attention? Now, there's a dangerous kind of thinking at work in the world today that assumes that because we can put satellites in space, that we are smarter in every way than our ancestors. And I have to be really careful here because I know that I'm preaching to a congregation that includes actual, literal, you know, astrophysicists and rocket scientists. Don't misunderstand me. It is incredible that Voyager 1 is still up there after 44 years beaming back information to Earth. But notice, King David, long before we launched spacecraft, he's asking the same questions that we do. And through verse 4, it seemed as though he agreed. He's asking the same thing. Aren't we just a pale blue dot? Remember that the ancient Hebrews wrote differently than we do. They had a very different literary structure. Um, when we tell stories, we have the moral of the story at the end, right? Um, like, uh, has anybody ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? So there's this movie The Sixth Sense um, for the a couple hundred of you who, who haven't seen it, and the two that have, sorry, I'm telling you something you already know. Um, in The Sixth Sense, there's a guy named Bruce Willis, and then there's this little boy played by Haley Joel Osment, and in the movie, we find out that the little boy can see dead people. And he sees dead people, and we go through the whole movie, and it's a fascinating movie, and at the very end, we find out that Bruce Willis is one of the dead people. And see, I just saved you two hours, right? <laughs> Actually, I saved you four hours because then you want to go back and watch it again and figure out how we watched the whole movie without realizing that Bruce Willis was dead. But the whole point is this. It's at the very end that we learn the secret to the whole story. But the ancient Hebrews told stories differently. 
they engaged a, a, a different literary structure. When they told stories, and especially when they wrote poetry, the meaning was in the middle. Call it chiastic structure. Right in the middle of Psalm 8 is the most important part of what David wants us to know. Right in the middle of the Psalm 8, it says, you have made him, you've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds, all the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim along the path of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's fascinating to me how, how Psalm 8 creates a perfect inclusio, right? It starts where it ends. I find it so interesting that after pondering mankind, King David returns to God's majesty throughout the earth. When I think about mankind, it doesn't often prompt me to ponder and to praise God's majesty. When I look around at the world, it doesn't prompt me to say, wow, God, you're so incredible. But apparently it should. Let's pray. Father in heaven. Father in heaven, all people are like grass. All of our faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But your word endures forever. And so, God, we commit ourselves now to your word. May it open our eyes to your truth. May it penetrate our hearts with your love. May it equip our hands for the work of your kingdom. May it engage us and encourage us. May it inspire us to right belief and to right living. It's in the name of Jesus and the sake of his inbreaking kingdom that we pray. Amen. A man named Arthur Penzatsky was a professor of mathematics and physics. He was blessed with a deeply analytical mind, but he loved journeying outside of formulas and equations, onto mountain trails, and camping excursions with his wife, Ellen. It was on one of those trips that they conceived of and created a brand new game since referred to as the Divine Game of Penzatsky. Anybody ever played the Divine Game of Penzatsky? Okay, well, let me teach it to you. It's a very simple game. It calls for one person, when out in nature, to, to point out a particular object. It could be a cloud or a coyote. It could be a mountain or moss. Any object in nature. And then to share what that object teaches us about God. So, the calm, lapping waves on a lake might remind us of God's persistence and yet his gentleness. The warmth of the sunrise on your sleeping bag, hundreds of miles from your alarm clock, might recall God's goodness and his love that his mercies are new every morning. See, these are opportunities to see how little, but also how loved we are in God's good world, in, in what John Calvin called the theater of God's glory. Now, it's no mistake that Arthur Penzatsky loved the Psalms. He, he explained that the Psalms had analogies that were warm-blooded, that made you feel something. He said that's why the Bible is loaded with analogies to teach us about God. And yet, Psalm 8 reads less like an analogy and more like a commentary on creation. It's almost a retelling of the words that Marcia read a few moments ago. A few of the verses seem to say the same thing as Sagan. 
We're just tiny little people on a pale blue dot. And yet, and yet, begins verse 5, and yet you have made them a little lower than the angels, crowning them with glory and with honor, which is almost what it says. It's not quite right in the New International Version. You see, the Hebrew word translated angels is the word Elohim. Let me hear you say Elohim. Elohim. That's what Elohim looks like. Remember, you're reading from right to left. Elohim, obviously. You've already heard the word Elohim read to you ten times this morning. Every time Marcia read the word God in Genesis 1 and 2, she was reading the word Elohim. And Elohim said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. And Elohim uh, made man in his own image. In the image of Elohim, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And Elohim blessed them. And Elohim said to them, be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. Elohim said, keep doing what you've seen me doing. And so the psalmist is echoing the creation account. You have made them a little lower than God. A little lower than yourself. You have crowned them. Notice that language. It's a language of royalty. You have crowned them. You have crowned us with glory and with honor. Now, there are different ways to perceive humanity in our world today. The easy way out is to take Jack Handy's uh, perspective and to say, well, there are two words, and we don't know what they mean, and so we don't know anything about humanity. But most of us would go one of two other ways outside of God's revelation. See, the wider world around us would have us agree with the assertion of scientists that we are merely a happy accident of enlightened animals on a floating rock somehow spinning around a sun. In fact, Stephen Hawking once put it more directly than Carl Sagan. He said, brace yourself, he said, the human race is just chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among 100 billion galaxies. Just a happy accident. This kind of thinking has even permeated the arts. Um, Samuel Beckett has a play called Breath. Has anybody ever heard of Breath? This play is only 35 seconds long, which is great if your spouse drug you along to the theater and you're not very interested in it. This 35-second play begins when the lights come up with the sound of a cry of a newborn baby. Then the pre-recorded sound of someone breathing in and out. And the light on the stage slowly fades. And then the breathing stops. 35 seconds. There are no people in the play, but the stage is littered with trash. I'm sure you can assume the meaning of Samuel Beckett's play, Breath. Life is incredibly short, it's irrevocably painful, and your existence is nothing more than trash. Rubbish. A waste. Just like Hawking would say, humanity is just chemical scum. Now, this kind of thinking is profoundly disruptive in a number of ways. First, because it feels, makes us feel despairing, right, and despondent. But actually, it's even more dangerous than that. It's dangerous because no one actually lives this way. No one can actually get out of bed and believe these things about themselves. Let me give you an example of how dangerous this can be. Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, the great philosopher, tried to live this way. 
Life is meaningless. We are nothing more than a happy accident of enlightened animals floating on a rock around a sun. And he tried to develop a philosophy committed to this thinking. And he became convinced that it was true for almost everybody. Some of you philosophy majors know where I'm going with this. But you can't actually live that way and actually believe that we are only a happy accident. Here's what Nietzsche did. He said, we're all chemical scum, except there are some people that seem to really have it together. <laughs> he developed a phrase called the Ubermensch, right? Because you can't actually think that all of humanity is just a waste, is all trash, is all rubbish. He said, well, there's this special class of people called the Ubermensch, the superhumans. The one who really have it figured out. And if you know what happened when Nietzsche's philosophy was absorbed, it led to the rise of Nazi Germany. You see, this kind of thinking is so dangerous, not just because it leaves us despairing and despondent. It's so dangerous because it leads particular people to think, well, well we must be better than others. So that's one way that our world goes in thinking about humanity today. But it's not the only way. Another way that we can often think about humanity is the exact opposite of the scientists, and that's when we think um, sort of alongside pop psychology that says we are all divine beings, right? And if you're feeling a little down, a little discouraged, well, then you just need a little bit more self-esteem. In our world today, devoid of what scripture will teach us, we've got these two options, well, it's just a happy accident of chemical scum, or you are divine. You are a perfect being. You are in charge of the world. See, neither of them fully reveal the truth as we see it in the scriptures. Both of them are an attempt to remove God from the equation. Now, don't hear me criticizing all scientific endeavor or healthy psychological practice, but these two ways of viewing humanity leave us wondering, which is it? It's almost dizzying which we are called to believe on a daily basis. And Psalm 8 makes it clear. Psalm 8 tells us not that we are a little bit higher than the animals. Psalm 8 tells us we are a little bit lower than God. Not lower than the angels, lower than God. We are not divine, but nor are we trash. We are created in the image and the likeness of a loving God as royalty. And not only us, by the way, but everybody. Even people that aren't Presbyterians. <laughs> Even people that aren't Christians. Even people that are opposed to organized religion. Now this seems rudimentary, doesn't it? But it is so revolutionary. That every person, no matter their race, no matter their class, no matter their status, their age, their background, their identity, their politics, everyone is created in the image of God. Think about how our world would be different if only we believed this. You see, thinking about humanity from the perspective of science only or from pop psychology leaves us empty in, in, in a world devoid of God. But think of how our world would be different if only we believed that every person we met was made in the image of a loving God and in his likeness. Think of what would happen if every time we came in contact with another human, we played the divine game of Pinzatsky. What does this person reveal to me about God? What does this person reveal to me about the good news of a God who creates out of love? 
Think of the justice that would be done in our world today if we believed this. Think about it. Justice only goes so far if you doubt or disbelieve that every person is made in the image of God. If you can't say every person is made in the image of God, you might get to a point where you say, I've done enough. I've worked hard enough. It's not my business. But if you really believe that every person is made in the image of God, that you can play the divine game of Pinzatsky and somehow see something about a loving creator, then justice would be done in the earth. Years ago, I went through a dark and difficult season of doubt, of wondering, is God really there? Does God really hear my prayers? And looking up at the night sky during that season was not for me a sign of God's majesty or of his glory. It just made me feel really small and really unseen. Perhaps, perhaps you've been there too. I asked a very similar question as, as verse 4. Who am I that God would pay me any attention? And it was through the Psalms, thinking the Psalms, pondering the Psalms, praying the Psalms, that God renewed my faith in Jesus. You see, there are hints of Jesus throughout the Psalms. Let me just point out a couple of them here in Psalm 8 for us this morning. Notice again in verse 4, the NIV says, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? But the King James is in some ways a little bit closer to the Hebrew. The King James tells us, What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? I think we've got it up on the screen. What is man that thou art mindful, and the son of man that thou visitest him? You see, in the ancient Hebrew mind, if you wanted to show someone that you cared about them, you would visit them. This is long before cell phones when you could show that you cared just by texting an emoji, right? <laughs> emoji heart, love ya, right? See, in the ancient Hebrew mind, to truly care about someone is to visit them. And I don't know if King David know, knew what he was pointing to when he wrote verse 4. But looking back through the lens of Jesus, we can see where he was going. We can see how the inspiration of God's Spirit was helping David point forward to the good news of a God who would visit us. And notice verse 2. Did anybody else kind of scratch their heads when we read through verse 2? Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and avenger. Was that weird to anybody else when we read that? It's like we start with verse 1, God, your, your name is majestic, and then we get to verse 3, when I consider the work of your heavens, and we love those, but verse 2 is like, what? And yet, here's why that's so important for us. Verse 2 is the only verse that Jesus quotes in the New Testament. It's the only verse from Psalm 8 that we hear on the lips of Jesus. On Palm Sunday, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And Matthew tells us that the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. And Jesus did what Jesus does. He healed them. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did. And the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, Jesus replied, and have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. 
Jesus is saying, they're quoting from Psalm 8, verse 2. See, the chief priests and the teachers of the law had a particular view of who was valuable, of who was in and who was out. They were on one side, and the blind and the lame and the children were on the other. And who does Jesus side with? See, Jesus knows how to play the, di- the game, the divine game of Penzatsky. Jesus sides with the blind and the lame and the children. Jesus says, I see in them the image of God. Jesus says, this is how God's work is really done in the world, through these little ones created in God's image who see without prejudice, who praise without pause. In his book, The Bible Jesus Read, Philip Yancey recalls the words of Isaiah. He says that when God visits earth, he comes not in a raging wind, nor in a devouring fire. Jesus arrives in the tiniest, least threatening form imaginable, as an ovum and then a fetus, growing cell by cell inside the belly of a peasant virgin. That egg divides and redivides until a fetus takes shape, and finally, a single baby bursts forth from Mary's loins to join the puny human beings on their speck of a planet. It's true, from four billion miles away, we are just a pale blue dot. And yet we can know the good news of a God who is love, who created us in his image, because he has visited us. Because he has come and has affirmed the praise of those little children and infants who know what it looks like when God shows up. May we be encouraged and inspired for works of justice in our world. Like the early church who came up with the idea for hospitals and orphanages and took in babies that others left to die because in them they saw the image of a God who is love. And it is that good news that our world needs to hear again today. When we have scientists on one side saying, well, we're just chemical scum. It's just trash, rubbish, a waste. And pop psychology on the other side, you you are a divine being. You just need a little more self-esteem. The world needs the good news of Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father, we give you thanks for this good news of Psalm 8. We give you thanks for the good news of Jesus who fulfills the promise of verse 4 that he has come to visit us. Would you open our eyes and ears to that good news that because Jesus has come to visit us, We can affirm your image and likeness in all those whom we meet. We can play that divine game of Pinzatsky, giving praise to you for your goodness to us, for your creation of us, and your redemption through Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.